Good morning, church. As the kids are making their way to their classes, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Isaiah chapter 1 still. Last week we began our study through this fascinating book, and I hope you're at least halfway as excited as I am about what God is going to do in and through us through the book of Isaiah. Last week we got a little bit of an overview as we looked at verse 1 of uh, the first chapter of Isaiah where he gives us the who, the what, and the when of this book. That it is a vision that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of those four kings that he lists there, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And this stretched during a time period between 740 and 680 B.C. Some 60 years where the Lord gave visions to Isaiah and Isaiah pronounced those visions and recorded those visions for the southern kingdom of Judah. We said that chapter 1 was comprised by four main elements. First, spoke of Isaiah. He's always been speaking to his people. God spoke to his people in Isaiah's day through the lips of the prophet. God spoke to his people in first century Palestine through his very own son, the Lord Jesus. And God is speaking to his people today, church, through his word, the Holy Scriptures. God has spoken and God is speaking. The question is, are his people listening to him? We're exhorted to hear him as he speaks to us in this book. And then the second main element that we really camped camped out on last week, because it comprises the vast majority of chapter 1, and that is the lament of sin that we see in this chapter. And that came from the lips of both Isaiah himself, as well as Isaiah speaking on behalf of God, as God laments the sins of Judah. First, we considered as they described the incomprehensibility of sin, the insanity of sin. And I hope you began to come to grips with how insane it is for us, God's people, to rebel against our God. Given his consequences, given who God is, why in the world would we continue in rebellion against our God? That is what Isaiah is lamenting. And he does so by giving us five pictures of the consequences of Judah. We looked at those last week. It was the picture of a beaten body, that that sin beats you up, a besieged city, a completely and utterly destroyed Judah, that that, that's completely destroyed of the vanity of empty religion, the vanity of and hypocrisy of empty worship before God. And we were given the picture of the corrupting nature of sin, how sin corrupts not just the individual, but his surroundings as well. Even the cities that we live in and the leaders who lead them. Now, before we move on to read our passage this morning, the second half of chapter one, I want us to consider for a moment why this lament of sin in chapter one. You see, it's one thing for God and Isaiah to lament sin. It's another thing for this to be recorded for us, God's people, on the pages of his word. 
Why does God lead his servant Isaiah to record this lament of sin in the scriptures? It's got to be more than just letting us know how God feels about sin. That he hates sin. That he is repulsed by our rebellion. It is more than that. It is so that you and I might likewise hate our sin. That we might be repulsed by our own rebellion against God. And that is what Isaiah is leading us to do. He's leading us through these five pictures to to walk away from from the lament of sin that we see in chapter 1. To lament our own sin. That we sin and be so repulsed by its vileness and putridness before a holy God that we might turn from it back to God. And so the main point of this morning's passage is just that. That we, God's people, would turn from our sin back to our God. Rebellion, which is where all of us are. Rebellion which gives way to repentance, results in redemption. But rebellion that does not give way to repentance results in judgment. And in this chapter, the Lord is pleading with the people of Judah, pleading with them through the prophet to turn, to stop going in that direction, to stop that And that there is no turning, no genuine repentance without coming to terms with the vileness and the putridness and the blameworthiness and the culpability of our sin against a holy God. And so he gives these graphic pictures of the sinfulness of Judah and then follows that up in this morning's passage with a call to repent and a warning of judgment. So let's read Isaiah One, beginning in verse 16, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. And will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, 
the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be desired and you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together this morning to worship you. I thank you for each and every one of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who've gathered here in this room to exalt the name of Jesus. Father, now we continue in that spirit of worship as we bow before you and we sit under your word and we humbly ask that you would speak to us from it. We thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. We know that it is truth without error and we know that it is applicable to our lives even today. And so God, do what you would do in our lives and through our lives to conform us to the image of Christ so that you might be glorified. And Lord, we pray in Jesus' name for those among us in this very room, the young and the old alike, who've never bowed the knee to Christ, who've never professed faith in Jesus as their only hope. Father, they may be here considering the claims of Christ. They may be here at the behest of someone else. But Father, they're here under the hearing of your word. Father, would you give them a conviction of their rebellion against you that is so strong and so unavoidable that they long, Father, by your grace and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we saw from our study last week that Isaiah first gives these vivid, very penetrating pictures of the consequences of sin as he laments over sin. And this is intended to bring conviction in our hearts of our sin, for, to, for us to see our sin in the right way, in the right light, and be convinced of our utter sinfulness. And, and a right view of sin will consequently lead sinners to hopelessness. A right view of sin will, will naturally lead sinners to hopelessness, as it will Isaiah in chapter 6, as we'll get to that famous chapter when he sees his own sin. And he says, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, I, I'm finished. It's hopeless for me, because I am so sinful, and God is so Holy And in this place of hopelessness, we long for hope. We, we, we long to know, is there a way out? Is there a way for this to be fixed? What can be done to fix this hopelessness? And so now in this passage, the Lord gives through his servant Isaiah here a command and a promise. The command will come first in verse, and then the promise will come in verses 21 through 31, and it is a promise of judgment. So let's look at both of those. First, the command to repent in verses 16 through 20. We've seen in Isaiah chapter 1 
the Lord lament the sin of Judah in general and lament in particular their sin of their vain and empty worship coming before God to put on a show of worship when their hearts are far from him. The verses immediately prior to verse 16 do this. This is God expressing his, both his hatred of and his weariness over Judah continuing to come and, and, and put on this show. To offer sacrifices and offerings of worship to God while still holding tightly to their sin and refusing to turn from it. This would be like you and I living Monday through Saturday, however we wanted, following after and indulging in all of our fleshly desires, living like a pagan, living as if we were not accountable to any God, much less the God of the universe, and then coming here on Sunday and putting on a religious show, thinking that we're going to impress God with our presence and, and, and with our offerings. When our heart is far from him and our Monday through Saturday lives betray the fact that we love our sin more than we love him. That's his 11th. I can't stand this any longer. I hate this. This is an abomination to me. Stop it. Stop it. And so now this is immediately followed in our text this morning in verses 16 and 17 by the, this these nine successive, rapidly uh, given to us imperative commands, one after the other, exhorting us to be purified and be changed, to be transformed. In other words, in verses 11 through 15, God is saying, your worship, what you're doing, is an abomination to me because it's empty, it's vain, it's hypocritical. And it's empty and vain and hypocritical because you're still living like I don't exist. You're living as if you're not accountable to me in any way whatsoever. And your lives are filled with the very things that I hate, and you won't let them go. You're still holding on to them tightly, refusing to leave them, and you expect me to be okay with that. And God says there, I'm not okay with that. And if you want your worship to truly mean something to me, then do these things, verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In other words, you can't come to me and worship while still holding on to your rebellion against me. It doesn't work that way. I'm calling on you to turn from that, he says. This is God calling to the sinner to repent, to turn from their sin and come back to him. Pastor and author Andy Davis says that verses 16 through 20 is one of the most famous calls to repentance and salvation found anywhere in Scripture. So what is repentance? Repent, to repent simply means to turn. It is a turning away from sin. And this turning, as we see here, is not passive, it's active. Every single one of these nine imperative is calling on, 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 us, on us to do something. And so this is not just a feeling. This is not just about feeling guilt or shame because of our sin, feeling bad that we've let God down. It's about turning away from that sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 
Paul talks to the Corinthians about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Listen to him as he discusses that with them. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, so he wrote the first letter telling them that they had messed up and they needed to get things right. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death of their lives, that their lives are different as a result of this genuine repentance, that their, that their salvation that was produced by the repentance is evidenced by a changed life. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what, what indignation over sin, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. So, so he says, there's a, there's a godly grief and there is a worldly grief. Worldly grief is, is being being sorry or, or sorrowful over consequences. Sorry that we got caught and that there's a price to pay because of our mess-ups. That's worldly grief. Godly grief, he says here, is, is being truly sorrow, sorrowful for our sin. Having sorrow over our sin. Having sorrow because we have such evil in our hearts, in our flesh, and, and it's come out. It's sorrow that we have so grieved our God. We love him and we've grieved him. And we're sorry because of that. And Paul says that godly grief leads to genuine repentance. And genuine repentance, he says, leads to salvation without regret. And the salvation that's produced by the repentance is evidenced by a transformed life. And so what God is doing here in the first chapter of Isaiah with the lament over sin that we've labored over so much is to seek to produce in us this godly grief over our sin. Show us what a life transformed by the gospel begins to look like in their life. This is what genuine repentance looks like. But here's the question that we have to wrestle with. Is this possible? Is this possible for sinners like us? Can sinners like us, who, who according to verse 4 from last week, have forsaken the Lord, have despised the Holy One of Israel, and are utterly estranged, can we wash ourselves? Can we make ourselves clean? Can we remove the evil of our own deeds? Can we even do this? Well, the Lord Himself says no. Through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 2, verse 22, the Lord says, Though you wash yourself with lye and much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. Go ahead, wash yourselves. But the stain of your guilt is still there. So the question remains, can sinners like us be cleansed? Can sinners like us be changed, as he describes here? And Isaiah himself answers that question in verse 18 with essentially only if we return to God. Verse 18 is an invitation to sinners 
to come to him. He says, come now. This is the Lord. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. These words in Hebrew mean, come to me and let's work things out. What an incredible kindness. Patience held against our Lord, committed an insurrection against our king. And thus the king is perfectly just and right to pronounce and execute judgment on us right away. And yet, he invites us to come to him and work things out. Is that even possible? Can things be worked out between sinners and a holy God? Between rebels and the righteous king against whom they have rebelled? Can can, can things be worked out between a criminal and a just judge? The invitation here to come to him and work things out gives us hope that perhaps they can be worked out. But how? The Lord says, through the prophet Isaiah, the remainder of verse 18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is an unmistakable foreshadowing of Jesus and what he will accomplish on the cross for sinners like us. This is pointing to that one that that Isaiah will later tell us about towards the end of this book, this suffering servant, the Messiah, who would come and take on flesh, the second person of the Trinity, who would come and take on flesh and live as one of us and die in our place, who would take the sin to cleanse them. This is pointing to Jesus. See, the bad news is that we are hopelessly, hopelessly stained by our own sin. And we can't wash that stain away. Nothing that we can do can can get rid of the stain of our sin. It is like blood in wool. It's not going out. Wash it though you may try. Try to live a good life. Try to do a lot of good things. There is nothing that we can do. It is hopeless for us to remove the stain of our own sin. That is the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus, because of his perfect life, achieving a righteousness that we never could in a million lifetimes, and his substitutionary death, he cleanses sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. John writes in 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, that is to acknowledge them, to own up to them, and turn from them. If we, are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, he says, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Note who does the cleansing there. It's God, not us. God is the one who cleanses through Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. Or, as Isaiah himself will say in chapter 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon it is Christ. Through faith in his work on the cross, that sinners like us can be cleansed of the stain and the dirt and the guilt 
of our sin against God. And so all of this is in the background of Isaiah chapter 1. And for now, he simply says to sinners, turn, repent, turn from sin, and turn back to me. And this is only possible because of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at Calvary. Now, there are two responses to God's call to repent, and we see those two responses in verses 19 and 20. First, there's a willing and obedient response. And secondly, there is a refusing and rebellious response. The first response results in the sinner, as he says, being able to eat of the good of the land. And the second results in the sinner being eaten by the sword. Literally eat or be eaten. The first response requires a soft heart. It's soft to the things of God, that repents of sin, sees sin for what it is, and turns away from it. The second requires a hard heart that refuses to repent and remains rebellious. And the reality is, the testimony of Scripture is that apart from Christ and His work in us, we all have a hard heart, and we need God to do a heart transplant. We need him as the heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh that is soft to the things of God, whereby we will recognize our own sinfulness before God and turn from it to him. The the reference there in verse 19 to to being able to eat of the good of the land, that the the repentant will eat of the good of the land, There's, there's dual fulfillment to that prophecy. First, in Isaiah's immediate future, This refers to the blessing of them being able to stay in the promised land and reap all the benefits of living in the promised land as his people. But it also refers in our future to the blessing of of being a part of God's people forever and enjoying the eternal reward that awaits us in the new heaven and the new earth. Likewise, that warning there in verse 20 that the one who refuses and rebels against God, who, who doesn't repent, and he, he shall be eaten by the sword, he said. That also has dual fulfillment. In, in Isaiah's immediate future, this refers to being conquered and destroyed by an invading army, like the Assyrian army to the north, that sleeping giant that's up there. But it also refers to our future, to those who refuse the gospel and continue and remain in rebellion against God, that they will be conquered and destroyed by our enemy, Satan. Which leads us naturally to the second section where turn away from that stuff, turn back to me. The Lord now promises a coming judgment. So let's walk through this section together. First, In verses 21 through 23, we looked at this briefly last week. This is one of the pictures of the consequences of Judah's sin. But we see here that that in the flow of chapter 1, Judah did not repent. After being called to repent, she did not repent. The people of Judah refused to repent, or they will refuse to repent. Remember, this is prophetic future for them. They will refuse to repent. And continue in their rebellion. And so Isaiah laments in verses 21 through 23. 
How the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. In other words, your city and your nation are, are, are corrupted by your sin, stained by your own sin. Sin not only corrupts the individual, but the very cities in which we live. Verse 23, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. In other words, Judah, you are so filled with impurities now that you can't even tell the difference between silver and dross. It's so intermixed that you can't tell the difference. It looks like it's all dross to the outsider. They've been so filled with sin and impurities. Verse 23, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, runs after gifts. They don't bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause doesn't come to him. In other words, the good that the leaders should have been doing among you, they too have been thing in society. And this has happened or this will happen in their prophetic future. They will refuse to repent and they will remain stubborn in their rebellion against God. And so the Lord promises judgment. Verse 24 is his declaration of vengeance. That a good and righteous God will bring good and righteous and just judgment for this rebellion. Verse 25, this judgment will come. We see that this judgment will come in the form of a purifying fire. He says in verse 25, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. What's he saying here? Well, smelting is the process of refining metals by putting them in a fire and exposing them to great heat. And that intense heat will cause the impurities to be separated from the metal itself such that the metal is purified. And remember back in verse 22, Isaiah refers to uh, Judah as dross. Your, your silver itself has become dross. But now the Lord will bring a purifying fire and smelt away that dross. And, and, he, and he further he says, I'll remove all your alloy. In other words, anything other than the precious metal that you're after, the, the gold, the silver to be extracted from that metal, anything else, all of that impurity, I will remove it, the Lord says. And so this whereby God would bring some kind of purifying fire to bear on his people such that rather than destroying them, it, it ended up purifying them. It smelted away the dross. It removed the impurities from among them. And we'll see as, as Isaiah continues to unfold chapter after chapter that this promised judgment, this promised fire, purifying fire, that would purify Judah would be the Assyrian Empire. That great sleeping giant to the north whom God would awaken from slumber and God would use that great Assyrian army to purify his people such that what was left was a faithful remnant. And then church, God would out of that faithful remnant one day, eight, some eight centuries later, bring his son, the Lord Jesus, the promised one, the one who would live a perfect life of righteousness and then 
be put to death in the place of sinners? Jesus. To further refine and purify a people for God. And that further refined and that further purified people of God is us, is the church today, the people of God, rescued, restored, and redeemed, coming out of this refining fire, are pictured in verses 26 and 27 as a redeemed city. He says, and I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. So we've come full circle, haven't we? The unfaithful city in verse 21 has now in verse 26 become, or prophetically future, will become the faithful city, the city of righteousness. And this is all God's doing. The city is not going to clean itself up. God will do this. I will restore, saith the Lord. Now, this also is going to have dual fulfillment, as, as much, if not most, of Isaiah's prophecy in this book will have dual prophecy in Isaiah's day and in ours. And so in Israel's post-exile future, so now we're fast-forwarding some 150 years from Isaiah's time. We're fast-forwarding some 55 chapters in the book of Isaiah, but in post-exile future, after the Babylonian exile, God would restore Israel. God would bring his people back. He would restore their judges as he promises. He would restore their counselors and much of her previous glory. But this prophecy also has fulfillment. Far beyond that will come a new Jerusalem that will come down out of the heavens and Jesus, our Redeemer, will reign and rule from this new Jerusalem in a fully and finally and completely restored and redeemed city. Because you see, we too, as the people of God today, we are in exile today as well. The people of God exiled in this temporary land, in this temporary time, caught between the already and the not yet. Because you see, the kingdom of God is both already and it's not yet. It's both here and not yet here. The kingdom of God has begun. Jesus announced that when he came. But it's not yet been fully and finally and ultimately consummated. But one day it will be in the new heavens and the new earth that John speaks of. And those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus will reign with Jesus forever. And then God says in verses 20, verse 27 that this city, this Zion, and the people in this city who have repented, they will be redeemed. It's the word that we looked at last week, purchased back. And they'll be purchased back with what? He says, with justice and with righteousness. So those who are redeemed in this city... And again, we should be thinking of the city of God, the, the, the new Jerusalem that is coming in our future, who, through faith in him and his finished work at Calvary, his shed blood at Calvary, and, and his 
perfect life of righteousness with no sin whatsoever redeems us, purchases us back to God such that we will reign with Him in glory forever. Church, there is so much good for us here. There is so much good here for the redeemed. But oh, there is so much bad here for the unredeemed, those who do not repent. You see, while verses 26 and 27 here tell us that for the remnant faithful in Judah, this judgment will bring a purifying fire, a a, a refining fire, verses 28 through 31 tell us that for those who refuse to repent, who continue to rebel, the judgment will not be a purifying fire, but a consuming fire. Verse 28 says, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. The judgment to come for those who remain unrepentant in their sin, stubbornly unrepentant, will not be a purifying fire, but this will be a consuming fire. It will consume them. Verse 29, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. In other words, those who remain unrepentant and thus unredeemed will want all that they pursued after in this life other than God. All that they sought to find contentment and joy in, all that they sought to delight in other than God, they will one day see the folly of that. They will see the folly and vanity of that empty life of pursuing after things other than him, and they shall blush, they shall be utterly ashamed and embarrassed because all of that will be seen for what it is when the glory of the Lord is revealed. Verse 30, For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. This describes the people who are parched, who are dry, who are weak, fruitless, lifeless. And then verse 31, And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The Lord says that those, this is hard, right? This is hard, but we have to come to grips with this. For those who continue to remain stubborn in their unrepentance, who continue to remain rebellious against God, both they and everything that they ever worked for in their life will burn in an unquenchable fire. So Isaiah stands before the people of Judah in chapter 1. Putrid says in or burn. So how are we to apply this today? as God's people. Let me close with four applications for those first who have placed their faith in Christ, the redeemed, those who simply by the grace of God have been brought to a place of repentance of their faith and trusting in Jesus as their only hope for rescue from the judgment that they deserve because of their sin. Four applications for the redeemed. First, that we would grow to hate sin. We grow to hate sin. We can't walk away from the first chapter of Isaiah without a greater 
a more comprehensive appreciation for the seriousness of sin and the vileness of it. God hates it. It destroys our lives and it corrupts everything. And so I can't help but think but that, that Isaiah intends for the reader as a result of this to cultivate in them a deeper hatred of sin in their own lives. Sin in the world, but more importantly, sin in our own hearts and lives. If we don't hate our sin to the point where we lament it, where we have this kind of godly sorrow over it, then we won't confess it and we won't repent of it. Rather, we will excuse it, we will hide it, and we will even begin to nurture it. May God, through Isaiah, grow in us a deeper and greater hatred of sin. Secondly, keep repenting. Church, keep repenting. If you're a genuine believer in Christ, then you've already relied to cover. But that's not the end of our sinning. And because that's not the end of our sinning, that should not be the end of our repenting. And if we stop repenting, then one must whether, wonder whether or not our initial repentance was genuine or not. You see, because we still battle against a sin nature, confession and repentance should still be a pattern of our life until Jesus takes us home. So what do you need to confess before God this morning? Church, what do you need to repent of? What do you need to repent of before God? Turn away from Stop excusing it. Stop trying to hide it. Confess that before God. Confess that before God and turn from it to Him. Thirdly, <clears throat> grow in our worship in spirit and truth. We recall that Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Behold, a time is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the, the, the Father in spirit and truth. And then Jesus says, these are the kind of worshipers that the Father is searching for, is looking for. Those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. There's nothing in this chapter that devalues or in any way disparages the worship of God. God absolutely loves it when His people gather to worship Him. What is disparaged here is worshiping God while still holding on to our sin and refusing to turn away from it. And so having repented, let us give ourselves to the genuine worship of God. Both the gathered worship and the scattered worship, to, to, and the scattered worship, as we scatter from here, and as we go to live our own lives, we're still worshipers, called upon to worship God, not just with our lips, but with our lives. And then finally, those who are redeemed as a result of Isaiah chapter 1, we ought to long for that new city that's coming and point other people to it. We are in exile here. This is not our home. We're just ambassadors here representing our king. And our king has told us that he's got other sheep that are not yet of this fold. And he's tapped each and every one of us who call upon the name of Christ and said, it's your job to extend the gospel to him. You take the gospel to him. You take the good news of the hope of the gospel to him. And the reality is, the more that we fall in love with this city, this world, the less inclined we will be to point people to the city that's coming. Church, don't be enamored by this city. With all of its glitz and glamour, it is absolutely corrupted by the sin of man. 
beyond repair. This world, this city is corrupted. And it bears very little resemblance to what God intended. And it bears no resemblance to the city that is coming. The new Jerusalem that is reserved for the redeemed. Be enamored with that city. Long for that city. And so be naturally compelled to point other people around us to that. Longs. But for those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the application to this passage is likewise clear. And I don't mean this tongue-in-cheek. Turn or burn. You, friend, are a sinner. You've rebelled against God, and you're not unique in that. All of us have rebelled against God. And we deserve judgment because of that. But friend, that judgment is real. And that judgment is coming. And for those who refuse to repent and return to God, the judgment will not be a purifying fire, but a consuming fire. And the eternal state of those who remain stubborn in their defiance against God and ultimately refuse to turn from their sin and trust in Christ will suffer forever in the unquenchable fires of eternal judgment. But there's a way of escape, and the way of escape is Jesus. God has made provision for the sins of man, and the provision for the sins of man is Jesus the Christ, who came and put, took on flesh, lived as a man perfectly, without sin, achieving the righteousness that we must have if we are going to meet our Maker. And then he went to the cross, and he died in the place of sinners, so that those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus as their only hope, though their sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, friend, will you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone and his offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness? Or will you tragically Face the prospect of eternal judgment with no answer and no advocate for your sin. I invite you to come to Jesus and be rescued. Let's pray. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, The way to repent and trust in Christ is to do just that. It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about checking a response card. It's not about raising a hand. It's about in the quietness of your own heart and soul at this very moment, agreeing with God about your sin. God, you're right. I am a sinner who deserves eternal judgment. I have rebelled against you, and I feel the weight of that. I feel the hopelessness of that. That is repentance. And the other side of that coin is to trust in Christ. In the midst of that hopelessness for rescue, that you see Jesus as God's means of rescue. And you call on Jesus Christ to save you. Lord Jesus, rescue me. I am just a poor sinner. I deserve judgment. But I believe that you came to live in the place of mankind and die in the place of sinners. So that sinners like me who deserve eternal judgment might be rescued. I place my faith in you, Jesus, as my Lord and my rescuer. 
I trust in you and nothing else, not my works, not my life, not my church attendance, but Christ risen, crucified and risen again. I trust in Jesus alone. Lord, save me, rescue me, restore me, redeem me. Would that be the cry of your heart? Or would you continue down the path of meeting your maker with no answer for your sin? Father, thank you for this good news. Thank you for your precious and timeless word that written centuries ago speaks truth into our lives today. There, but the sin in here, may we grow to hate it so much so that our lives would be marked by continually repenting, turning away from that sin, and turning to faith in Jesus, trusting Jesus rather than caressing our sin. Father, may you receive true and genuine worship because we are a repentant people desperate for the grace of God in Christ. And so we cry out in praise to you, thanking you for what you've done for us in Christ. And oh Lord, may you build in us, may you grow in us a longing for that city that you've promised. And until we get there, may you give us the heart and the opportunity to point other sinners to that city, away from the city that is corrupted around us. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us in Christ. Make us a faithful people until you bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.